Hello everyone, I am Captain Joel Hood, United States Marine Corps representative at the Center for Law and Military Operations. Welcome to Battlefield Next, a podcast devoted to the application of the law to the future of armed conflict. Today we have the privilege of hosting Lieutenant Colonel Chris Franca. Lieutenant Colonel Franca is Staff Officer 01 to Head Operational Law, British Army. We also have the privilege of hosting Lieutenant Colonel Andy Farquhar, Army Legal Services, British Army, who is the Deputy Director of the Legal Center within the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Gentlemen, welcome to Battlefield Next. Thanks very much indeed, Joel. Uh, my name's Andy Farquhar, and I'm the Deputy Director for the Legal Centre at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Centre and School. Um, I'm responsible for helping to run a very committed and hard-working team who punch well above their weight in terms of their size. We're not a very large uh, legal centre organisation, um, but the directorates uh, are four of them. There's the Leadership Centre, uh, the Future Concepts Directorate, the Centre for Law and Military Operations and the Training Development Directorate. And in my role as the Deputy Director here at the Legal Centre, we've been in our roles for about 18 months and so Chris, Franker and I thought it would be a really good idea to just put um, a, a few thoughts down out on the podcast to let everyone know how interoperability has been going and what we hope to have, have achieved over the last little while and to um, explain what we think is important going forward over the next few years. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. So I am Lieutenant Colonel Chris Franca. As far as my role, I work directly for uh, the head of operational law, uh, British Army, which is a one-star position. This position sits uh, directly underneath the head of the Army Legal Services, which is the director of Army Legal Services, or DALS. Uh, and this is a two-star position. So uh, if you want to think of it in another way, this would be the UK's equivalent to the US Army's TJAG, currently Lieutenant General Stuart Risch. In my position, I focus primarily on three pillars of work. I would say that I spend a lot of my time, perhaps the most of my time, furthering interoperability. And when I say that, I'm I'm not trying to say that I'm trying to further interoperability just between the British Army and the U.S. Army, but it does look wider than that. But obviously, because of this this podcast and because of my work with Andy, we do spend a lot of our time working together. And so I would say that we've progressed legal interoperability between the U.S. and the British Army. Um, Unfortunately for you. you know, and some of the things that we're also looking at in terms of legal interoperability uh, at the British Army, uh, you know, we're not just talking about mili- military to military. Uh, we also look outside of the military. So, for example, we work very closely with the uh, Ministry of Defense or the MOD, as well as the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. So there are some initiatives there as well. So we're looking across government as well as kind of branching outside into the military to military aspect. The second pillar of work that, that I really focus on is training and education. And so that, that really looks at both internal to the Army legal services, uh, as well as external and to the to the British Army uh, writ large. And then finally, uh, we look at operational law doctrine, not just in the land domain, but we work with our sister services as well uh, to kind of look at doctrine, uh, help them update it, but review it as well from the Army perspective. Awesome. That's great. And so in, in terms of just setting out what we're going to talk about today, we'll, we'll set out what the initial assessment was for interoperability about 18 months ago, two years ago when, when we took over our roles, and then go into a little bit of further detail of, of what we've done over the last little while and, and how we hope that it's lended our efforts to interoperability and, and pushing things along. So in terms of the initial assessment, it, it was something like out of um, 
Beautiful Minds, but but written by Simpleton, i.e. me, uh, down whiteboarding sessions and taking up several large uh, walls of, of whiteboarding to lay out. What and he's the, not joking there. I'm, Literally walls of whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was the only way that I could put my thoughts out. And um, and essentially what that looked like was, was trying to get our arms around what was the uh, foundational basis for interoperability, what worked, what didn't, what, what had after-action reviews produced in by way of recommendations and, and how could we actually structure our thoughts around a vision for interoperability and, and so what that looked like was that my position in within the, the center for law and military operations from what my role it was increasingly difficult to see uh, how we were going to be tr- be getting the interoperability vision ultimately after all that assessment and whiteboarding we came to the conclusion that we needed to link the exchange officer positions more strongly to the the requirements that we were trying to get after with interoperability, the structural requirements of try, trying to tie the positions together more closely. So Chris's job and my job, we needed to be more synchronized so that we could conduct mutually supportive activity. And I say structural because it appeared to us that there was room to create more of a formal process between the positions and in terms of the of cohering the activity that we were doing uh, and we'll speak more about that that activity a little bit later on so essentially we identified that there was minimal linkage between the the two formal roles uh, there was a lot of training being conducted and education being conducted but largely it wasn't really synchronized and there wasn't a end state in mind when conducting that activity so we then looked across the wider exchange officer footprint. So there was there's exchange officer roles at Three Corps uh, down in um, in Fort Hood, and there's also an exchange officer position, a U.S. exchange officer position at Three Div in Bulford. Right, and, and if I could just jump in right there, Andy. So uh, you know we talk about kind of how the need for this uh, more formal structure and. Just to be clear, prior to Andy and I kind of taking over our positions, that that was it on the U.S. side and the U.K. side. It was Andy's you know position here in the U.S. and mine in the U.K., but but no other position. So when we came in, there were these two new positions: the the one that uh, in Fort Hood and the one in uh, Bulford, as Andy has mentioned. So what does that mean for us? Well, uh, as part of our initial assessment, you know, how do we bring these new positions into the fold, and how do we validate their worth? And so that, to me, I think showed us that we did need to have that structure. We did need to increase the linkages to kind of get the word out, if you will, but really to kind of validate the positions because we're always fighting. We're always fighting for the resources that we have uh, and we need to keep them. And we can't maximize those new positions unless we're all talking to each other. Yeah, awesome. So in terms of how we put the um, interoperability sort of vision together, if, if you like, off the back of that whiteboarding session, I, I ruthlessly stole an idea from the US Army People's Strategy, which had a really good one pager in terms of ends, ways and means. It looked visually clear and, and striking. And so I thought if I could use that framework to start to put down interoperability related subject matter, we could actually put something together that, that was clear, looked good, you can communicate it, that to people. And so what we really developed was an ends, ways and means for interoperability uh, and the vision for the, for the end state being indisputable, allies, modernized and ready to deploy 
fight and win against the full spectrum of threats around the world. And so that's really what we're after. The end state would be um, that when we deploy on, on operations as a coalition, we are able to dispense our legal advice to operational commanders to enable their operational effectiveness. And in a sense, the, the end state would be theoretical, which would be that a, a British army officer could provide a legal, legal advice to a US divisional or corps commander on the basis of US interpretations of international law and US policy national law positions. Uh, and so whilst that is sort of the, the perfect end state, that's what we're aiming towards and that's what we're trying to frame all of our activity around. It's enabling that subject matter expertise, that knowledge, that force, force structure knowledge, that, that capability knowledge, which really allows you as an operational lawyer to add a lot of value when giving your operational law advice. Right. And so how do, you, how do we get there? Right. And, and this is, I think, um, what we kind of assessed right off the bat is, you know, the need for this vision was critical in kind of structuring our efforts going forward. But then the secondary effort is how do you get there? So now that we have this vision, you know, we felt it was critical to start with some sort of process. Uh, because if there's no process to enable that vision, uh, then you lack direction. When you risk a lack of direction, you there, the therefore, the foundation of that initial vision that you were trying to build potentially falls apart uh, upon our ultimate transition. As we touched on earlier, that was part of the issue that we noticed, noticed in our initial assessment. The lack of continuity during transition processes or tr during transition. And uh, the process itself kind of created the, the, the springboard to create continuity. So Yeah, because the idea is if you have a good uh, process in place, you don't need necessarily personalities. You can um, maintain through people PCSing and, and, and being assigned to different places. It doesn't matter because you've got a process which is in place and hopefully survives the, the movement of personnel around our organizations. That's right. And so uh, with, with, this, with this understanding, we wanted to develop something that was accessible, that was direct, but comprehensive so that it, it left room for, for two things, the, the critical quick wins to build that momentum, but also the opportunity to develop longer term projects to really kind of leverage and engage our, you know, the creativity, the, the innovation uh, to kind of give us something that we could ultimately turn over at the end of our time there. Because I think if you kind of look at it from kind of a basic backwards planning perspective, knowing where we wanted to end up two years after we got here really kind of led us to this point where we could turn something over for the longer term for our for our replacements. Exactly. So talking about the ends, ways and means that the main ways that, that interoperability is is improved uh, are f five main areas. One is doctrine and information management. Uh, the second is key leader engagement. The third is education. The fourth is training and the fifth is exchanges. And, and those are in order of priority. And so what I think is also really important to kind of note here is that, yes, we, you know, Andy, Andy whiteboarded this. Yes, Andy and I had a lot of conversations about what this should look like, but we got a lot of consensus and we built a team. And then this working group team uh, kind of looked at it and provided input. But then more importantly, in some ways, is we we got uh, then Brigadier General Berger, now our DJAG, uh, involved and my my boss in the ALS, one star uh, Brigadier Keith Ebel involved. And we got that senior leader investment in the process, providing that direction and guidance, which cemented the vision. Uh, the vision, by the way, uh, we have it in front of us and we're looking at 
it is accessible to anybody, uh, and, and we can push it out. But it, it's prioritized. It's developed through consensus, and then overlay that with the with the senior leader engagement and the emphasis there. Uh, really gave us that that point where we could really get to work. Yeah, and th- and then essentially once we had uh, managed to get that signed off at a, at a senior level, really w- what that enabled was the activity. So more more planning. What longer time horizons to try and, and synchronize some of this activity so go, going back to the sort of ends ways and means the thing that we the, one of the things that we noticed when we first came into the roles was there wasn't really any legal interoperability doctrine uh, there was no there was nothing that we could really put our hands on to say this is super helpful from a, a legal perspective. There's lots of joint doctrine in terms of interoperability. There is interoperability army doctrine, but nothing that was just specifically legal interoperability. And so over the course of about eight months, uh, the team here in, in, in the legal center managed to be able to put the, side of time, the time aside to read into the topic and then to start building that. And so by the end of that eight month period, We've now got uh, legal interoperability doctrine, which is specifically uh, written for for legal advisors in mind, which is going to be uh, built into the next FM 1-004, which is the legal support to military operations. That's that's army doctrine. And also looking at the information management system. So there is a really good, and this is a plug for the APAN, which is the allied uh, all-partner network. It, you, can, you can Google APAN and click on the link and apply for an account there and that's really useful because it means that wherever you are in the world you can get onto that portal you can open up an account and you can share information up to official level which is super helpful because the difficulty when you find with information sharing which is a real impediment to interoperability is either it's got to be unclassified and you basically just host it on a sharepoint somewhere that anybody can get hold of or it's on protectively um, marked and secured information systems which you need access to secure rooms and all that sort of stuff but then there doesn't seem to be anything in between that and so APAN is very useful because it does hit that sweet spot of being able to be opened from the internet um, but you, you you do go through a firewall so you can hold uh, information on there up to official level so that was that was super helpful in terms of there were the other documents which are really helpful if for the five eyes community the the abcans coalition operations handbook so that's the um, the australians british canadians um, new zealanders and american um, forces that the military forces uh, put together this really useful coalition handbook, which which had a wholesale review uh, and, a, and a significant rewrite about four or five months ago, which is a fantastic book, a handbook if you're going to get deploying operations within the the coalition environment. It's a great handbook to get hold of. Yes, and so going back to the to the process and the structure part of this, these products are are intended uh, and expected to be iteratively reviewed. So if if we don't have as exchange officers in our respective roles if we don't have a process uh, to kind of to look at this uh, you, you quickly become overwhelmed in the tyranny of the urgent uh, and so having the process going through uh, you know the review during our time doesn't mean that we're done 
uh, you know, doctrine. It's it's like your foxhole. You, it, you need to constantly improve it. And so now that the process is in place, and it is our line of effort number one, uh, doctrine and information management, and we have this vision, now we get it turned over, and, and, and people are constantly looking at it, and we're making the updates, uh, and, and we're furthering interoperability in that way because we're sharing the information, as Andy said. The other things that we have looked at as well, or, or, or what we feel as, as one of our big successes, is that interoperability is really permeating uh, through through our respective organizations. Uh, our director of Army Legal Services uh, is constantly being invited uh, over to to the U.S. to to brief at the at the worldwide. You know, there's the few symposium that's coming up, and 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 we're 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 constantly interacting there. So the message of interoperability is is coming down from those senior leaders uh, and into our formations. Obviously, as, as you heard before, Major General Berger is, is uh, directly involved in our efforts uh, with, with Brigadier Keith Ebel, so that the, and, you know, and, and we're working on efforts so that the cohort uh, on both sides, you know, receives the instruction and information that kind of informs them and, and instructs them around the importance of strengthening interoperability. These podcasts, for example, this is one of the really great uh, opportunities that, you know, thanks to the to the JAG Corps for, for making this available to us all. Uh, but but this is how we spread the word. It gets out there and, and people learn about interoperability. Andy and I, this is our second podcast and, and people have listened to them. People that... Maybe one or two, your yeah. mom, my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, they reach out. They reach out and they talk to us and, they, and, they, and, and I have gotten feedback from the field uh, thanking us both for, for really bringing this to the forefront and then explaining it in a way that is helpful to the field. Because if we are not explaining it in a way that is accessible, then it's going to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. It's about um, spreading the word. It's also about re- reaching a level of sort of shared understanding as to how each nation works. What are their what are, what's their planning process? What's the role of the legal advisor in in the in the various stages of that planning process? And it's also about I think reaching a level of of understanding so that if you're talking about a given issue, you're using the same terminology. You're using the same uh, jargon, if you like, so that you're actually, even though we're both speaking English, there are words in the in the British Army that are different in terms of meaning from the, the JAG Corps and the US Army. And so if you can get rid of those misunderstandings, it makes everything else much simpler in terms of reaching that shared understanding. And so legal interoperability. So throw a different question at you, Chris. Um, Explain what legal interoperability is. Sure. (laughs) So, you know, this is, in in my mind, this is that relationship building. Because as Andy had mentioned, right, there there are differences uh, in our our language, right? And and we're not talking about two people separated by a common language. We're talking about doctrinal terms of art that mean different things in both organizations. So, you know, you look back on the exercises and which are, which are windows into why legal interoperability is important. And so if we were to use uh, the recent warfighter exercise back in 2021 as an example, you start to understand that, you know, where where the British officers are talking about captured persons or CPERS and the U.S. Army are talking about detainees, well, the British Army looks at detainee in a certain way Whereas the U.S. Army is like, well, detainees are everything, you know, to an extent. Um, so there, there are these phrases that that are that we're talking the same thing, but we're using different words. And therefore, if we can kind of move beyond that, or at least understand what we're talking about, then that initial shock of confusion can be avoided, and you don't then risk um, hindering the momentum that you're building. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's also different interpretations on use of force. So whether that's self-defense, uh, offensive force, whether that's uh, the fact that, that you guys are mildly obsessed when it comes to fiscal law, which the British Army, um, thank, thank the Queen, uh, we don't have to have to deal with that particular bugbear. So there are lots of aspects to uh, military pra- military legal practice, which are different depending on which organization you're from. And so it's crucial. This really all gets after that ability to operate alongside each other and essentially facilitate operational effectiveness of a coalition force. That's what legal interoperability really gets, gets after. And it, law, I mean, I would say this because I'm an operational lawyer, but there are so many aspects of operational law that are relevant to military operations, whether that is detention on the battlefield, intelligence sharing, use of force, fiscal fiscal law issues, contracts, discipline. So there is so much that is nested within the practice of operational law that it's absolutely crucial that we are able to be interoperable because if we're not, the chances that we allow our commanders to become interoperable is is definitely hampered. And so that's why I think it's it's so crucial. Absolutely. And so how do we then improve this shared understanding? How do we get after that? And so some of the efforts that Andy and I have advanced um, or, or been a part of advancing uh, you know, we look at education and information sharing, you know, information sharing being our, our you know, number one line of effort, doctrine and information sharing, education being number three. But um, we have to understand that, it, you know, you, you can't build the relationships if you're not in the room together. Uh, I was at a course recently um, and we had, uh, I was very fortunate to be there and, and Harold Coe uh, was speaking and he, he made a, he drew a great metaphor. He's like, you can't be at the landing if you're not at the takeoff, right? And so we can't improve interoperability. We can't improve our shared understanding if we're not in the room together. And so that's why education is, is so important. So the ALS has recently developed the senior op law course, um, and we just ran our pilot program. And, and we extended an invite over to the JAG Corp. And, and Brigadier General Allison Martin, commander of the legal center and school here, she traveled there. She traveled all the way to England to attend that course for several days and share that information with the ALS. Less, uh, and, and build those relationships because, as our former TJAG said, you know you can't surge relationships. You have to you have to be there together. Another example is the ALS is is moving forward and really developing what they call the Intelligence and SEMA Law Course. And so I had the privilege of attending that course back in November of 21. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I learned that was really like a stark contrast between what the ALS does and what the JAG Corps does is the involvement that the ALS has in domestic operations. We we don't have that level of involvement in domestic operations in the U.S. Army JAG Corps, at least on the active duty side. And so kind of understanding the challenges and the, and the issues faced in that arena really kind of helped me understand, you know, why the ALS is constructed in the way that it is, you know, w- what it's looking at. Uh, and so so then that's how we build that shared understanding is being in the room together and seeking out these opportunities to join in education and, and training and learning. Yeah, because actually part of it is is you could be individually inter- interoperable, but what we're trying to achieve is that institutional interoperability. So moving it from being a number of individuals who are able to go into other forces and, and operate alongside allies and partners. 
uh, and moving it from from the individual to the institution. So you've got so many people who are interoperable that that actually largely the the organisations can work really well alongside each other, um, and that's all nested in from the army perspective, the army staff talks, which was another thing that we were involved with, um, which was which was essentially the the army at the army level, the four star level, trying to build interoperability across weapons platforms, um, across capabilities so that we can harness each other's strengths going out the door as part of a coalition so it's actually just increasing all of those linkages is is the is the aim but it wasn't all plain sailing chris was it so uh, it's good i think we to be own our failures and so i think in terms of extreme ownership i'm a jocko willink guy uh extreme ownership uh, going through the failures where where through almost uh, recce by fire we stumbled into some things that were going to be so difficult that they weren't worth investing in and then some things that we tried that actually weren't as as good as we thought they were going to be so there were a few things that, that I think it's fair to say that we didn't move the ball along as as far as we would have liked uh, one of those was that we would like to have uh, done short pulse exchanges so identifying individuals who can go to other countries for a short period of time sort of under under three months in order to try and get the same experience or a concentrated form of experience that we've been getting from going to another country and and being embedded within a within a different um, team, but that actually, from a funding perspective, was a nightmare. And the reason why we can easily move within our program is because it's an established program with established funding streams associated to it. And one of the difficulties in, in short pulse exchanges is it, you'd have to go on TDY, essentially. So your unit continues to pay for you. It's very expensive. And the losing unit is thinking, well, what am I, what is the unit? If you're a, if you're a divisional commander, you're thinking, well, what am I getting in return for that? The, the up, the, the sort of Im- improvement in that one individual is at the cost of maybe other things that they're wanting to do because it is so expensive. And so that was one of the things that I think we identified as not necessarily doable in the immediate term. That's right. And and another one that uh, I have really taken to heart in terms of failing uh, in my initial mission was to create a, a more formal structure uh, to to. Uh, exploit the opportunities in collective training. So I'll just put it out there. I am a process person. Um, I love processes. I love structure. It it just like soothes me to have predictability. I and thank the gods, Chris, <laughs> because if, if you didn't, then we would have been in a, a complete mess. Right. <laughs> and so I will say that this is probably one of the things that I will look back on and and ask myself after I've had some time to reflect on this position is how come I didn't do this thing better? And what I mean by that is there are, there are so many collective training opportunities out there. Um, we are always training NTC, JRTC, JMRC on the UK side, uh, all of the exercises that do at the Salisbury Plain, moving over to Germany and, and exercising at Senelager, et cetera. And so how do we ensure that we get judge advocates into UK-led exercises? How do we get ALS officers into the US-led exercises? There's there's willingness there. There's, there's eagerness to do this. But on the ALS side in particular, there's a fourth generation uh, challenge 
the ALS is about 100, 112 personnel strong. And so when you're talking about taking 2% of your, of your total workforce out of the net, it is a significant emotional impact for that legal office that's losing these high-quality individuals for not just the two weeks of training, but you want to send them there a little bit early so they can get acclimatized. When on their way back, they've got to, you know, to take maybe some leave or, or maybe work on product so that we can share the good word. So it's a, it's a challenge and it's tough and it's, and it's a risk reward analysis. And so that force generation process on the ALS side, which, by the way, is not controlled by the director, uh, we have to work hand in hand with our operating units. That's to, one of the other big differences right. is TJAG has his tasking authority, so he can basically just turn to major X and say, hey, you've got to come out of Korea tomorrow and I'm sending you to Hawaii. Uh, whereas Ardell's doesn't have that tasking authority. And so it's a big difference. That's absolutely right. And so, you know, you have to coalition build, you have to build teams and you got to get people to invest. And and unfortunately, I just, I was not able to crack that nut. One of the other things that we, we talked about uh, really wanting to do uh, as, as Andy had mentioned and alluded to earlier is that, you know, that institutional advancement of interoperability. Uh, we wanted to make bespoke, uh, at, I, I understand that's a British term, but basically unique, tailored, uh, <laughs> tailored uh, interoperability courses at our, uh, at, our, our, at our training schools, if you will. So at the JAG school, like a course solely on interoperability and the ALS, having a course uh, delivered to the ALS that was purely on interoperability. And um, I'll let Andy take that one. Yeah. So I think the idea behind that would be that you would have a bespoke course where you would have students come and they would be taught on, for example, all of the issues that I've mentioned that impact on the battlefield, whether that's uh, d d detainee uh, handling, whether that's intelligence sharing, whether that's SEMA, whether that is use of force, whether that's escalation of force, all of these topics would, would be broken out and essentially taught from two different perspectives, you know, one on, on one nation, one on the other. So you understand not only your own national positions on these topics but you'd also get the position and the legal position from the other nation uh, and that but the difficulty with that is that for institutions like uh, the legal center and school uh, they've got a very very packed curriculum already and so what we what we aspire to do is to feed interoperability issues into all of those courses that are already being run and actually that's where you want to get to in terms of interoperability that it's not just a thing on its own but actually it's part of all of the subject matter of all of the courses that you run and so that's just a time intensive job which is to go through all of the curriculum and to weave interoperability in through all of all of those courses so that's just a time issue that's right i mean the logistical challenge in developing a, a course we we learned very quickly i mean that's a full-time job in and of itself that would take maybe a year or more and not only that but there are other requirements there there are essentially assurance uh, um, requirements right so in the uk it's dsat right you yeah. have to have it dsat compliant how yeah. do you get there and that takes a lot of time uh here at the jag school you know you've got to go through an accreditation program if you're going to have a course delivered in that manner and so i guess uh to use a trite term i mean the juice just wasn't worth the squeeze and so uh, although a failure in quotes 
uh, I think that what we did instead was kind of redirect our energy and start to, like, as Andy was saying, weave interoperability topics into existing courses. Um, and that's not to say that there is no space for a bespoke course, but maybe that's just for a, a different team uh, sometime down the road. Somebody who's like way more uh, bright and capable yeah, than for right. me, for sure. So in terms of the failures, we've gone, we've gone through the failures. And I think now in terms of talking about what's next. So I leave the States in... Uh, the end of July. Um, it's been an amazing two years and uh, hopefully doing a little bit of travel to Hawaii to meet up with Chris who will be uh, flown in with his family to Hawaii and set up set up shops. So I'm hoping to share a, a beer on the beach at some point. But before all before all that happens, um, in terms of what next, we've we've had the exchange officer working group today, earlier today, and the idea behind that was to build a forum for exchange officers wherever they are in the world. As, as somewhere that they can discuss issues, they can identify uh, opportunities or events or exercises or training courses uh, that are happening in their area so that we can identify where we might be able to do stuff alongside each other and, and take hold of those opportunities. So that was the Exchange Officer Working Group earlier today. And we had about 12, 15 people on that. And I'm hoping that that can be used as a forum that widens the net a little bit because obviously Chris you and I talk about interoperability on a daily daily um, da daily, <laughs> <laughs> daily basis um, but it's a very sort of siloed conversation and so what we're trying to do is just open the aperture more widely and include more people in the conversation and so hopefully be able to build that that institutional interoperability that we spoke about earlier that's absolutely right that 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 is one of the initiatives that I think, although it came on towards the end, um, very proud of. I mean, we had people from all over the globe attend this meeting today, and and thank you to them for staying up late or getting up early. I mean, it was a really valuable opportunity. The other thing that I think really happy to turn over to our to our um, replacements um, is further work to strengthen formalization. I think that this is just by virtue of the nature of our positions, that it, it is and will likely remain a challenge, and there. Therefore, we must always be at the forefront of these efforts. In the final months, Andy and I, we conducted our, uh, we will conduct our final steering group. Um, this is our uh, key leader engagement. So General Berger and Brigadier Keith will get together and they're going to give us kind of that transitional guidance. Uh, so outgoing team uh, to the new incoming team so that they have some clear goals that they can take up right away and just move out on and w which, which kind of cements that senior leader emphasis and endorses the efforts that we have kind of undertaken, you know, and it approves the, the planning. Yeah, it does. And it, it approves the planning out, out 24 months because the difficulty that you identify with interoperability, one of the main problems is once you've left a job which interoperability was fundamentally part of your role is that you atrophy really quickly. And so even though you were able to do, you know, deploy on, on, on operations in a coalition, within about two years, your ability to instantly go back into that situation is degraded significantly and you require more training, more exercises in order to bring you back up to speed. And I think one of the key lessons that we've learned sort of painfully is you have to be constantly moving just to stand still and that requires a level of, of planning and engagement and synchronizing all of these activities just 
literally to stay still. So I think one of the key it will be to make sure that we mo- maintain that momentum, but widen the aperture so there are more people involved and more people engaged, hopefully, in, in all of the different activities that we've spoken about earlier, so that we further that, that institutional interoperability. And, and the other thing that I would, I would say in terms of what's next is, uh, I think that you know, Andy and I, or our positions, we, we can't we can't keep this momentum on our own. And and in order to to really kind of see the benefit or validate the purpose of what we've been doing in terms of bringing formal structure and processes to the table, um, we really want to see that tactical level engagement, that structural, that institutional interoperability. And so we commend to our to our successors, you know, them kind of pushing that message out and saying, hey, let's form linkages to from office to office. You know, you don't have to come to me if you want to talk to X office about, you know, Y opportunity. Just keep me informed, keep me in the loop, because that tactical level integration, that's where those relationships are going to be built. And that's what's really going to carry this forward. And also the processes, I think, survive changes in personality. And so if you build in formal uh, processes and and meetings and working groups, it just means that people can um, PCS and be posted and assigned, but you've still got that framework around which people know what the the aim of those those groups are and they have an opportunity to contribute and to maintain that momentum. Absolutely. So uh, now that we've kind of are starting to wrap up our our, uh, two years here, Andy, what would you say uh, are some of your key takeaways? What have you learned in this position? Gosh, um, I've learned a lot. Um, essentially, I think one of the most the most important things, and it's this is not, nothing that's uh, sort of rocket science, but relationships are absolutely crucial. And what that means is you've got to take the time to spend with people learning about them, what their background is, where they come from, making sure that you can understand what capabilities they can bring to the, bring to the fight, if you like, you, so that you're not asking people in, in sort of coalition operation um, perspective, you're not asking them to do things that they can't do because they don't get, have the command authority to do it or they don't have the capability to do that. You, you understand that because you've discussed that beforehand and anything that you uh, you think will impact upon that you've you've already got out in the open so so i think relationships are absolutely crucial i think the second thing is because we are in hierarchical organizations the senior leadership engagement is absolutely fundamental because guess what if if your boss if a senior leader is interested in something everyone's interested in it or at least you can make other people be interested in it so i think the senior leader engagement has been absolutely fundamental and i think general berger and brigadier abel have been absolutely brilliant in giving us all the support that we needed in order to open doors or to get resources unlocked so senior leader engagement is is crucial and i think i think the final thing i'd say is the opportunities out there for interoperability are super fun. Not only are they fun, but you learn an absolute ton and you meet people that maybe are going to be friends for, for a long time and contacts that you can reach out to in the future. So it's enormous amounts of fun. And if you can make the interoperability activity not necessarily about the event. So let's say you go on a, um, when we went down to Fort Hood to do a Warfighter, part of the the time we spent there was rewriting the ABCAN's coalition handbook based on what we were doing during the day. And so you end up building these products that stand the test of time, at least at least for the next six months, years, 
two years and be iteratively improved. So you're leaving something that is able to be used and help other people along. So I think just how much fun it is and if you have the opportunity to to go on exercise or go on a on a on an, on an exchange or go to a course whether that's in america or whether that's in san remo or whether that's in the uk wherever that is just to seize those opportunities because it's just a load of fun and you meet some ace people you learn some great stuff um, and you hopefully hopefully building that that legal institutional interoperability as you go along. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with all of that. I, I I think that for me, I think for me, I hope my I hope my replacement, Lieutenant Colonel Justin Freeland, sees it this way when he gets into position. But I I really I have learned that there is a need to hand over something with clear goals. You could actually li- li- literally hand him over a skeleton in the closet because you've, he's taking over your house, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, 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 yes, that's right. Taking over the house and the cars—it's almost Hot, as if things are on the house. That's right. That this is how we this is how we um, maintain momentum. <laughs> um, but you know, as we discussed, Andy and I learned uh, very early on the importance of having a long-term plan, and so we hope that. As far as that goes, we made progress. Uh, we hope that we've left something tangible uh, for our for our replacements to take up and and, and move out on. We hope that w- what we have done has provided some clear uh, direction, and we hope that they build on this foundation. I would also say that one of the other points that I learned, and it's probably no surprise because, as I mentioned, I'm a process person, but it is really really critical. And I know we've hit this ad nauseum. But it's process, process, process. Interoperability is really complex, and I really do believe that it can get easily mired in personal initiative. And so we have to kind of fight against that uh, and do our best uh, to bring others along so that we can all invest uh, into what I consider a mutually supportive uh, effort. Awesome. And on that bombshell, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to do the podcast and uh, looking forward to seeing you in Hawaii on a beach with a beer. Absolutely. Thanks, brother. Take care. Are you an operational law judge advocate or civilian professional? If you are interested in participating in the Battlefield Next podcast, we invite you to reach out on tjaglix.army.mil forward slash FCD. We are always on the lookout for the next conversation to prepare the JAG Corps and sister service legal services for the next fight. For the Center for Law and Military Operations, thank you for joining us on Battlefield Next.